All right, hello. Uh, welcome to Adventures Among Ideas. So on a previous episode, I uh, went through a recent article by Eric Charles and Nick Thompson. This was a while ago now, but this was an article about how we're able to know ourselves. So Charles and Thompson had been exploring the work of the pragmatist philosopher uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, who you might have heard of, especially Peirce's concept of abduction. Um, abduction is one kind of inference, along with induction and deduction. I'm not going to get into all the details of this again, but Charles and Thompson argued that when we recognize ourselves to be in a certain state of mind, or to have a certain kind of personality, or maybe even to be engaged in a certain type of activity, we're making an abduction, again, a kind of inference. So for example, I'm having fun at this party. People who have fun at parties are extroverts. Therefore, I am an extrovert. This is an example of an abduction. Or I feel like I am on the verge of punching my, my boss. People who are on the verge of punch punching their bosses are angry. Therefore, I am angry. Uh, in general, of course, we don't explicitly think like this normally, uh, but this is how we've been taught to understand ourselves. And we've been taught so well that it's become pretty automatic. Uh, we've come to, kn uh, to know the signs for emotions like anger, sadness, hunger, joy, etc., as well as personality traits like um, bravery, foolish, arrogance, modesty, and so on. Uh, as well as many other categories that can be considered personal, private, subjective, whatever term you want to use. And we've learned how to apply, uh, how to apply these to ourselves and to other people. The question I want to deal with today is, how have we learned to do this? So how have we learned to apply these um, concepts to ourselves? How have we learned to label and thus understand or be conscious of our inner states or what behaviorists call private stimuli or private events or um, private behaviors. So how are we able to respond verbally to private stimuli? And one thing people mean by consciousness is simply being able to make statements about your private stimuli. So it's one thing to have an experience or to simply experience um, it's another thing to know you're having a particular type of experience. So this is a question about responding to private stimuli in such a way that we can be said to know them, right? It's a question, um, and it's a question that B.F. Skinner has addressed, and I think it's worth trying to uh, understand his answer. So that's what I'm going to try to do a little bit of today. So now it seems pretty unquestionable that we learn how to talk about the things that are out there in the world. We're not born knowing what, uh, knowing that a dog is a dog, or that a cloud is a cloud, or that a chair is a chair, or that, uh, you know, dancing is dancing, and so on. In the case of external objects or events, things like that, which we might call public stimuli, in the case of these public stimuli, like dogs and clouds, and public actions and stuff, it doesn't seem too difficult, too problematic to say how we learn what they are. Our teachers point out that a dog or a, uh, point out an object to us, like a dog or a cloud, so that we're all able to see it at the same time or hear it, smell it, whatever, at the same time, and they can show us how to respond to it. 
either with words or other actions, right? We can learn what to call it. We can learn what to do with it and so on. But what about stuff that under normal circumstances, only one person can experience? It seems pretty clear how we can learn to respond to public stimuli, but how do we learn how to respond to private stimuli like bodily pleasures, pains, which we can experience, but our teachers can't? How do, how do I know that something um, like hunger is hunger? How do I know what hunger is if you can't experience my private inner stimuli along with me and show me how to respond to them? Well, obviously it gets done. All of us adults at least know or we think we know when we're hungry or satisfied or tired or wired or whatever we might be feeling. But uh, as Skinner argues, this gets done only with relative difficulty and with a lot of room for error. In one writing, he compares this process of learning uh, how to respond to your private stimuli to a process of a blind person teaching a sighted person about colors, right? The sighted person um, can actually see the colors, but he has to be, doesn't know what they are. they are. He has to be taught what they are by a person who can't actually see them. So this is the kind of the bind that society is in, in teaching us about our kind of private states. So Skinner thought there, there uh, thought that there were four ways and only four ways. In uh, early writings, he says at least four ways. Later, he says that these were the only four ways he's ever been able to think of. So he thought there was four ways in which the verbal community, our society, can get us to respond verbally to private stimuli, things that uh, only one person can feel. So these four ways were first described in an essay called The Operational Analysis of Psychological Terms. This was published in 1945. It's a very famous essay. Um, but this essay was actually an extract from his book, Verbal Behavior. So you could also look at um, Verbal Behavior. I'll uh, include some, uh, I'll try to remember to include some references in the description. Um, so this essay was actually an ex extract from Verbal Behavior, which he was uh, still in the process of writing in like the 30s and 40s. So what are the, the four ways in which we learn to respond to private stimuli? Well, first is that there are often public accompaniments to private stimuli. When you fall and scrape your knee, for example, there is both a public part, which might be vi you know, visible tissue damage, um, blood maybe, and a private part, a feeling that we eventually learn to call pain. So the community teaches us to say that hurts when something like this happens because it knows that tissue damage accompanies some kinds of pain. So if your community sees that you've damaged your body, they're like, well, that must hurt. And you kind of learn how to apply these terms to um, the feelings that go along with those visible things. So, and uh, so I say, said uh, society or com the community teaches us, but um, Skinner, of course, would prefer to say reinforces. So when we say that hurts after an injury, this bit of verbal behavior gets reinforced if our parents or other people uh, comfort us and we're more likely to say it again in similar situations. That's kind of what Skinner means by reinforcement. Uh, reinforcement. I'm going to try to keep things... Uh, not very technical today. Um, 
So the first way we learn to respond to private stimuli is by way of these kinds of public accompaniments, such as visible tissue damage. Um, so second, there is often a publicly observable collateral response to the private stimuli. So I'll give an example. So the child that falls and scrapes its knee often starts crying or might uh, start walking with a limp, for example. And the crying or the limping is a collateral response. Uh, a publicly is just a publicly observable behavior that goes or that occurs because of a private stimulus. So before we were talking about just things that you might see, um, but this is actually behavior that goes along with um, a private stimulus. So the child might even point to the place that hurts. And on the basis of these collateral responses, like crying or limping or pointing, the community will reinforce verbal behavior such as, my knee hurts. Um, again, reinforcement here might include things like comforting the child, taking care of the injury, things like that. All right, so... So far, I've mentioned public accompaniments and collateral responses, the first two. The third way that the community can teach or reinforce us to respond to private stimuli might be called metaphorical or metonymical. Don't worry too much about uh, metonymical, but um, just it's similar to metaphorical as a kind of figure of speech. So if you get cut by a knife or poked by a needle, you experience what we call a sharp pain right now the pain is not literally sharp right at least in the the conventional sense of the word the object that hurt you is sharp according according to the definitions of the verbal community but we can later use words like sharp to talk about feelings that are not caused by sharp objects you kind of transfer um the description from a sharp pain caused by a sharp object to just a pain that has a similar kind of feeling. So you might tell your doctor that you have a sharp pain in your side, which you don't know how it was caused. And this uh, description of your pain may lead the doctor to treat you differently than if you had a, said you had a throbbing pain or a dull pain or something, which are other metaphors which have been taken from the world of public objects. All right, so those were the first three. The fourth and final way is a bit more specialized. Skinner thinks it may be seen as a special case of the first way, which had to do with public accompaniments to private stimuli. Uh, the fourth way could be a bit tricky to understand because Skinner doesn't give any examples, which is kind of weird. Um, so I've tried to make up my own, and he gives them in another place, but at least uh, where he's directly giving his uh, explanation, he doesn't give examples of this one. Uh, but the fourth way has to do with the fact that behavior has both a public and a private side. So when we walk, our walking is publicly observable, right? You can see people walking. But there's also a private proprioceptive feel to our walking, right? People feel how they walk. We see how other people walk, but they feel how they walk. So the community can observe how we walk, but not how walking feels. But we can learn to respond to the private side of the behavior using language that is used to respond to the public side. So for example, after you have learned what it feels like to walk fast, right? You don't necessarily at the beginning of learning to walk, you don't know the difference between walking fast and walking slow, how those two things feel or what those two things are. But eventually we learn like what walking fast is. 
and you learn what that feeling is. Like when people say, yeah, you can really walk fast. You know, we kind of learn, associate the feeling that we have at that time with the description. Um, so you've learned, uh, so after you've learned what it feels like to walk fast, according to the kind of conventional observable standards of the community, you can be aware of yourself walking fast in total darkness, right? We kind of know what we're doing when it's totally dark, even though we can't see ourselves or no one can see us. So even though you can't see your body moving, you can't see the environment going by you, but you still know the feeling of walking fast. Um, yeah, so if someone later asks you, uh, when you were in the dark, did you walk fast or slow? You can give the appropriate answer, even though you couldn't see what you were doing. Um, the example of speech is also very interesting. So the community reinforces or punishes our, um, our speaking by calling it clear or muddled or well-paced or too fast and things like that. Uh, so we learn to feel whether we're talking too loudly or softly, too fast or slow. And um, yeah, and there's even more. So at some point in development, we learn that we can speak privately. In other words, we learn to think verbally. If we're just sitting quietly thinking, the community has no way to observe what we're doing. It doesn't have any way to observe our verbal thoughts. But we can transfer words that have been used to describe or respond to public speech to our private speech, right? So you may notice that your mind is racing or that you are thinking clearly today or that your thoughts are muddled and so on and this comes from taking descriptions that have been used of our public behavior and applying it to our private behavior through the feel that we um have come to have come to know over through experience and through society helping us to label our experience yeah so um so this is how we learn according to Skinner to make, I wanted to tie this back into the idea of abduction. So this is how we learn according to Skinner to make abductions or inferences about or verbal behavior, verbal responses to our private states and behaviors, right? So we learn how to uh, make verbal responses to our private behaviors, what Peirce called abductions. And again, there was four ways. So the community can reinforce a response based on public accompaniments um, of private stimuli, such as tissue damage, as we talked about. Uh, the community can reinforce a response on um, based on public responses, such as crying made to the same stimulus. And the response can be metaphorical based on public, public stimuli, such as when we talk about a sharp pain or even about butterflies in our stomach, to give another example. And lastly, behaviors have two sides, the public and the private, and we learn how to respond to the private proprioceptive side as we learn to, uh, as we and others respond to the public side of the behavior. So this then is how we um, come to know ourselves. The community makes it possible for us to know ourselves and it does so because our public and private behavior is important to the community. There are important reasons we ask questions like, what did you see or how do you feel? And the community needs its members to be able to answer. We all learn more about our environment by being able to ask each other about our private experiences, right? But despite this being so important, there are obvious difficulties in teaching someone how to respond to their own private stimuli. As Skinner said, 
It's like trying to, um, it's like a blind person trying to teach colors to a sighted person. Uh, and there's another interesting point to make. So by taking these four ways of learning how to respond to private stimuli into account, right, by thinking about these four ways, you can also see that our knowledge of ourselves is bound to change somewhat depending on the kind of uh, environment we live in, on the language available, on how important our particular private states are to the community. Um, so because of this, there may be more or less rich degrees of subjectivity possible, depending on the time and place in which we live, right? Environment matters, um, yeah, what society needs matters, and things like that. So there can be more or less rich degrees of subjectivity, I think. And there's a very interesting um, possibility to think about, something Skinner mentions as well. And I'd also um, note very briefly that uh, Julian Jaynes, um, another kind of famous psychologist, gives a somewhat similar picture of subjectivity, of learning subjectivity, in his book, uh, The Origin of Consciousness. Although he doesn't break things down in quite the same way as Skinner, but um, they're kind of compatible views, although they come from fairly different perspectives. All right, anyway, that's all I wanted to talk about today. So, as always, thanks for listening, and uh, keep adventuring.